Well, good morning, church. How you guys feeling today? Feeling good, I hope. Back there, sounds like they're good. Uh, Good stuff, good stuff, good stuff. Hey, how about some good stuff? Grab your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. So we're going to start out today. Ephesians chapter 4. We are in a little sub-series of a giant endeavor that we have been on of journeying completely through the book of Ephesians, figure out what in the world does this mean for our real lives right here. Uh, if you're kind of new to MCC, one of the things we do as opposed to jumping around from topic to topic, we, we kind of just go to, hey, let's go to this one book of the Bible and let's kind of take this word by word, verse by verse, and really see the whole picture of who God is and what he's saying about life in general right here. And so that's what we're doing. Uh, we've got about to chapter four so far. I'm going to read it to you, hopefully explain a little bit of what it means, and you can walk out of here knowing I grew closer to God today. Let's read it. This is the Word of God, church. Ephesians chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. These are our verses for today. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Church, say amen. It's the word of God. So we've been in a series called Odd is Good. We started last week, and as we've been journeying through this, we called it that so that you would understand that in chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul tells the church in Ephesus and the church here at McDonough that this God that we serve, that this God is odd. And it talks about who he is and then who we are in light of that. And so if if God is this way and we are this way, there has to be a way that our life actually looks different. And last week we unpacked this, this truth and reality that in order to truly understand what Christian activity looks like and should be like and how we should act and what we should do as Christians, we have to understand who God is and who he's made us to be. That's why Paul spent three chapters exploding this gospel truth of who you actually are. And he over and over again used these two words, in Christ, in Christ. You know how many times Paul called the people who are part of the church Christians? Zero. Over and over again, he uses this term in Christ to refer to the people who are the body of Christ. And that's the hinge point. He says, this is who you are in Christ. So your identity comes before your activity. But then he says these words in chapter four, when he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And this is kind of what everything he said before and everything that he says after is gonna hinge and ride on. What he's gonna get ready to do, and he does this from basically chapter four, five, and six all the way through, is he begins to explain, okay, here's what it means to be in Christ, and here's what it means to be in Christ in Ephesus with boots on the ground. And he's doing the same thing for us. Hopefully that's, that's what happens here. That in chapters one, two, and three, we learned, here's what it means to be in Christ. And then chapters four, five, and six, we figure out what in the world does it mean to be in Christ in McDonough, in Henry County, here in Georgia, in your school, in your workplace, in your family. What in the world does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which I've been called? To recap a little bit from last week, we said that that call is kind of twofold, that it's a call into oneness with God, 
It's a call into oneness that finds itself being lived out through unity, unity in the family of the believers. And then it's a call to holiness, a call to be separate. It's a call to be set apart. And it's a call to personal purity. Now, I just wanna kind of pause for a second and just lean into and celebrate you guys. I don't know if you were here last week, but we had an incredibly powerful moment at the end of our service. Uh, We uh, pushed a bunch of the chairs back and we took some tape and we put a big giant thing of tape to create a line that kind of went all across the front of the room. And as we did that, we took a second to invite our church into this moment where we step across a line and we boldly say that together with all the saints, with this family of people who are in Christ today, from this day forward, we're gonna step into walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And it was beautiful. I don't know if you took a second to kind of, if you were here and you you took a second to look left and right, but people from all sorts of different tribes, tongues, nationalities, age, gender, all of that, race, money, everything was up here. And we were singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though the cross is before me, the world is behind me. And then icing on the cake, we got to see three teenagers. Now, I don't know if you know anything about teenagers, but it is a crazy time of life. And I, and I say this, not joking. I think um, whether it's the animal kingdom or the spiritual kingdom, predators know to go after the young. And there's an, all out, there's an onslaught on the, on the mind, will, emotion of young people. And it was a powerful, beautiful moment to see three young people take a stand against darkness, to take a stand against who they are in Christ and surrender their life to be crucified, buried with Christ and raised up anew and be baptized. Two of them we knew were coming. One we were praying was coming and we celebrated like crazy last Sunday. So I just wanna take a second and let's just like kind of praise God for what he's doing, how he's moving amongst us. It was good. And it's odd as good. You know, when you show up to church, you know, a teenage boy who shows up at church and then leaves church kind of damp, like that's odd. You know, like you, you left choice church. I know some of you don't like this word moist today. You know, that's, that's odd, but that happens. And, and maybe that happens again today, but it's so awesome to see God at work, God, see God moving. And I believe he's got more to do. Ephesians 4.1, it's kind of, un- oh, we're already there. How about that? Ephesians 4.1. He says, therefore, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And last week we unpacked what this looks like to do that with all humility, with all gentleness, with patience, and to bear with one another in love. I wanna camp out on this a little bit before we move into verse four and five, where we're gonna spend the majority of our time. He said, do this eagerly. Do this, like be humble, gentle, patient, and bear with people and do that in order to be eagerly doing everything you can not just willing, but eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now I wanna camp out on this word for a second. I don't know if I made this point well enough last week, so I wanna make sure I make it today. There's an M right there. He says, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, if you have not been listening that is not the message that the world and culture is pushing on us. Everything in the world and culture, whether it's news, whether it's online, whatever, says that we need to attain, 
We must attain racial reconciliation. We must attain class racial or class reconciliation. We must attain age reconciliation. We must attain gender reconciliation. But the gospel comes in and says, hold up. What if your futile attempts to attain all of those things are leaving you still at failure rate of 100% because you have failed to realize that those are all secondary and tertiary places that we can be unified on. If we can get unified on Christ, all of that will fall into a place. So what he's calling us to is not to try to go out and attain all of those unity in those areas, but to maintain the unity that we have with Christ and with each other if we are in Christ. And what will happen is then the dominoes will begin to fall into effect. He says, I've already attained peace. I've already attained unity for you. Your job is to maintain that. So let's talk about what peace is not. Peace with God. A lot of times we think peace with God and we think about it in terms of geopolitical peace, like the peace that needs to happen between Russia and Ukraine. In order for there to be peace there, two sides that are opposed to each other need to just stop fighting. Put down your arms, you go back to your place, I go back to my place. When the Bible talks about you being made at peace with God, unified with God, what it is not saying is that God was mad at you and he's not anymore. That is not what that means. That's geopolitical peace, but that is not gospel peace. Gospel peace says, it's not just that I'm not mad at you anymore. We are one, we're together. I am in you and you are in me. The same way I would look out for you, you look out for me. The same way I would look out for myself, I now look out for you. The same way I want what's best for you, I want what's best for me. That is gospel peace. Gospel peace says you were once separated. Now, why were we separated from God? Because of our sin, a lot of it. Against a holy, righteous, pure, perfect God. We were separated because of that. And that God comes in and allow his, allows his son to bear the full weight of your sin, both the sins in your past, you have a hard time even remembering, both the sins that you committed this morning and may commit today, the ones that you just thought about, and the sins of your future for all mankind, past, present, future. He says, all of those sins have been paid for by my son's righteous blood. And then he doesn't just go, now you stay over there and I'll stay over here pure and holy. Jesus made it really clear in the gospels. He said, if anybody puts faith in me and my father, the father and I will come and make a home in them. There's there's not you out here and me out here. It's saying we're now one too. Now, grasp this, in order for that to happen, in order for us to receive unity and peace with God, Jesus had to be at enmity with God. He had to be treated as though he was against God. Jesus got treated like what we deserve to be treated. The Bible tells us that we were by nature children of wrath. We were at odds with God, but that God comes in and says, I'm not just gonna forget all of that. Somebody's gotta pay for that or I'm not a just God. I'm not, a, I'm not a righteous God. And so what Jesus does is Jesus pays the price for that. Jesus gets treated the way we deserve to be treated so that we can deserve to be treated the way that Jesus should be treated. But it does not stop there. It's not just, oh, cool, I'm at peace with God, yeehaw. It's we who are all in Christ are now all one with God. And get this, one with each other at one 
And this is the point that Paul is trying to make here, that you will never understand the gospel if you leave this aspect of it off. And that's why he invites us to maintain this peace, maintain this unity. And see, this is, this is odd unity, guys, real odd unity. See, it's not the unity like, like yesterday. If you were maybe in, you know, I don't know, Hall County on your way to, to go to Athens. I don't know if that's even on the way to Athens. If you were in Lawrenceville, I'm pretty sure Lawrenceville is. If, wait, the game wasn't even in Athens. If you were in downtown Atlanta, sorry. It's, listen, when it's still baseball season, your pastor cares little to none about any other thing. Besides Jesus, my family, and baseball season. Um, so if you're downtown Atlanta going to the Benz Dome and you pull up at a gas station, and you're pumping gas and you got your red Georgia Bulldog jersey on. And across the way, you see somebody else with a red Georgia Bulldog jersey on. What do you yell out? Go dogs, that's right. You, you, woof, woof, woof. you bark across this stinking thing, you goofy people. Um, you know, now let's talk about Thursday afternoon. You're in the same spot. You don't got a jersey on. Like, is there any reason for you to ever just go dog somebody across the parking lot? No, not at all. See, the unity that God is talking about here is a unity that doesn't have, is, is a different kind of unity than sports unity. Because what do you do when the game's over? You're not, you're not going out of your way to celebrate your union. What do, what do you, like even if it's patriotism, today's Labor Day, it's a patriotic day. What do you, what do, you do when the country falls? If the only thing that we had that really bound us together was our patriotism or our candidate or whatever, if the only thing that bonds us together is something that can be here and then be taken away, well, what do I do when that's gone? You see, the unity that Jesus is offering is a unity that's eternal, a unity that's forever, a unity that's far and above all those other things. And it's the unity that unlocks the door for unification to happen in all those other areas. It's odd is good unity. And it's odd because it's not about oneness. It's, it's an odd unity because it says, we're not demanding that everybody be the same, think the same and do the same. We're just demanding that everybody be one. It's odd because it's a unity that says, it's unity, but not uniformity. And see this, this unity that is so much, that is what makes the church of Christ so unique is a unity that actually finds its greatest source of strength in its diversity. The fact that there are people who do think different, who do act different, who do vote different, who have all sorts of different heritage and backgrounds and maybe see God from all these different angles. That's actually some of the strength that is in God's church is that it isn't all the same. It doesn't all come from the same background. It doesn't all have the same amount of money. It is not all the same age. And there's no one right group of people and there's no one wrong group of people. We are God's people and we're unified. And so he says, this is, this is what I'm calling you into. And I'm calling you into this, not just so you can like wear a gold star and say, we're part of the church, Yeehaw, we're unified. Uh, he's calling us into that so that we can show a world looking on that goes, that, that is aching to divide itself and fraction itself over and over and over again. He does this so that we could be a church that would say to a world looking on, no, you know what? It is actually people who will be the source of the solution to these things, the people of God. It is, it is actually possible for people who, have different skin tones 
who make different amounts of money, who vote differently and think differently, it is actually possible for them to gather together to worship one God and, to do, and not to just do those things and then go home Monday through Saturday, but to actually do life together and to have those conversations, even when they're hard. He says, this is what you've been called to do. And it is 100% odd. Paul goes from there and he draws our attention kind of a little bit off of ourselves and puts it back on God. And he says these words, this is our passage, two passages for the day. He said, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called with one hope that belongs to your call. So he, he's gonna get into more ones and ones and ones and ones and ones if you're, if you're looking at verse five, but let's just camp out on these. He said, there's one body and one spirit. And the reason these are kind of put here together and you're like, hey, doesn't, it doesn't go in this like ascending order and it's not neat and it doesn't make sense. I think Paul's actually doing this on purpose. He's trying to help the church know that you're now one body and the thing that made you one body is not your good deeds. It's not where you came from. It's not what you know or what you don't know. The thing that made you one body is one spirit. And that's a capital S, brothers and sisters. The thing that makes us one is, is not what you do or don't do. It's the faith that you have and what Christ has done and how the Holy Spirit has awoken you to that so that you can see what he has done and you surrender your life to him and you become in Christ. And so, so saying you're one and you're a part of one body because of the one spirit who made you in Christ. And he says, because of that, you've been called to this one hope. So this group over here isn't hoping for one thing and this group over here isn't hoping for another thing. See, this is, this is why so much tension and drama gets created, whether it's in marriage, whether it's in life, whether it's in the church. If we're all not hoping for the same thing, do you know what that is a recipe for? Disaster. And we've seen that happen, right? Our hope, and again, the, the hope that I think he's taking back to is remember, it's a hope that belongs to your call, which go back to last week. What is the call to? The call is to purity and unity. This is what we're called to. So, all, there's a lot of tertiary things in that, but the most important two things is my own holiness and our own oneness. And if it doesn't jack those things up, okay. Again, we, we, got, we talked about you know, people leaving churches over you know, flowers on stage and, and, and in little bitty issues and all these other types of things. Paul's going, no, 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 no. The two most important things, two most mission critical things is our own personal purity this realization that, that your sin that you do in secret does affect the family of Christ. And this call and this reality that the things that you say that are disunifying even outside of these walls, they actually do affect what happens in these walls in this family that is here. And he calls us into this one hope. And again, I, we gotta be hopeful on this because don't you wanna live in a world where you don't have to think those things? Where you don't have to like be in traffic, think something, because you grew up in a home like I grew up in. And then I have to like, <laughs> if some of you guys ever see me in traffic and you see me do this, like, like I, <laughs> there's a Bible verse that says, take every thought captive. Well, I think before I do that, I have to shake it out first and then I can grab it. Like, I, uh, seriously, like you just get there. And it, I, maybe I'm the only one that's crazy enough to, to say it, but like that happens. Like I just go somewhere and I'm just like, oh no, get out of there. Like, and you have to get those things out. But man, I long for a day where my knee-jerk reaction isn't disunity. I, I long for a day where my knee-jerk reaction, when I see certain things or feel certain things, aren't impure thoughts and impure motives. And Paul is saying here, that's our one hope. It is to hope that there is a day that is coming, a day that the church of right now will usher in with the help of Jesus Christ, where we will live in complete unity 
and complete purity. And man, I long for that day. And it's not a day that I feel like um, is impossible for us to see come to fruition in and amongst ourselves. And I've seen it come in and, in and to fruition, even in things that we've seen and experienced here. And I long to see it more and more. He goes on from there into verse five and he lets his one grenade blow up. He says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So again, I, Paul just rolling at this point and he hits one Lord, one faith, one baptism and one God. And I believe the reason he's doing it, I'm gonna take you into a little bit of the context of the church in Ephesus to try to explain why. Um, there's, I, I could spend 45 minutes going through each one of those things that he says one on. I'm gonna save you that. Um, you can go meditate on every one of those. I, I highly encourage that. But I'm gonna zoom out and try to see it from the whole grander picture. Why in the world will Paul go to lengths? Every one of those things, he's explaining for a reason to say that there's one God, there's one faith, there's one father, there's one spirit, there's one baptism. Why is he explaining? There's actually seven things that he does right there. And if you know anything about Bible and numbers, seven's the number of completeness. I think maybe there's something there. I don't know. Regardless, the point that he's trying to make, remember who he's talking to. He's talking to Ephesians. The church in Ephesus was a group of people who were all first generation Christians. Nobody grew up going to church. Nobody had Sunday school, okay? Nobody went to Awanas or camp. Paul brings this into their life. The culture and the environment that they're, they're already living in is one with all sorts of gods, one with all sorts of spirits, one with all sorts of faith, one with all sorts of everything, and one sorts of things that you need to do in order to get these gods on their side. Meanwhile, all of the Ephesian Gentile people who are coming to faith in Christ, you know who they know about? Jewish people. And there is a huge religious racial divide between these two groups. Now, Paul, they know is what? A Jew. And he's the one who's coming to bring them this news. Now, remember, I showed you guys this big picture of the temple. And there at the temple, there were places that Gentiles could not go. The Gentiles, if you look at the temple where, where all the Jewish people said, hey, our God is the one true God, he's Yahweh, and we go here to Jerusalem and this is where we worship him. And us men, we can get into a closer place to get to God. Us priests can go into a closer place, but we really have kind of cornered the market on God. You Gentiles, you can't even get as far as our women can get. And so what Paul is doing here when he's talking about one God, one faith, one spirit, one baptism, one father, is he is saying to the Gentile believers that you're not getting a secondhand faith. He's saying that you're not getting this leftover thing, the same spirit that the Jews have, you have. The same father that the Jews have, you have. The same baptism that the Jews get, you get. He's saying, we are now one. You're not missing out on anything. And then he kind of turns a corner. I believe this is the point he's even making to the Jewish people and going, hey, you were super proud because you had this heritage and you thought you had the corner on the market. Newsflash, this guy, Jesus came and he fulfilled all of those things. And now even what you had is comparable to nothing in light of what you do have now in Christ. And so he says to all of them, we're not Jew or Gentile. We're in Christ. That's who we are. And that's why he blows this grenade up of all these one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And now I want to spend the rest of my time on these alls. So we did one, I would do for all. He says, there's one God and he is the father of all who is over all and 
through all, and in all. Now, Paul's not just trying to be this pontificating preacher to just kind of get it rolling and get people hyped in the audience. Like he's not getting bars here. Like that's not what Paul is after in this moment. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. Let me explain this to you. We believe that the scriptures were not just Paul writing some of his thoughts. It's not just Paul's journal. We believe as Christians that the Bible, this, this thing that hopefully you don't take for granted, this is the inspired, inerrant word of God. So when Paul writes this, it is not just Paul filling out his emotions and journaling. And then we were like, that was some really good stuff. Let's just put it in some leather and give it to people 2000 years later. No, what we believe is that every single word that Paul wrote, every pen stroke that he had there in that Roman prison was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God himself. So these are God's word to me, to you. And the thing about those things is we serve a very precise God, a God who would, if he had put planet earth, even a, 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 a millionth of a fraction of a degree this way, you would all be big piles of mold molten bones and lava. And if he had done a corner this way, you'd all be frozen. This very precise God says all of these very precise words for very precise reasons for us to hopefully get something out of today. So I want to walk through these because I don't know about you, but for me personally, anytime I see the word father in the New Testament, Something makes me slow down. To really realize that over and over again, throughout all of scripture, when God wants to identify himself to human beings like me and you, broken, messed up, jacked up human beings like me and you, he chooses to call himself father. Now I know in a room this size, two thirds of the people in this room, you have a wound from a father and there's something deep within you that aches for a father. And so if we have Paul going on a rant describing who this father is and what he does for us, let's lean in. First of all, he says he is the father of all. The father of all. What he means here is that every single predestined believer is now adopted in. It reminds us that there is not a Christian out there who does not have a father. Paul's making this point that if you are in Christ, you don't just have a God, you have a daddy. And the same right that Jesus had to over and over again throughout the gospels, call him Abba, which is basically the same thing that if there was a little Hebrew boy sitting in his high chair eating manna or Cheerios or the, whatever the equivalent was, when his dad walked in the room from carpentry or whatever, he would have said, Abba, Abba. Same way that your newborns, your, your little kids would say, Dada. He says, this is, this is what you have. You don't have a distant, far, unapproachable, unprotective, unproviding God. You have a father. Now, this is huge in light of the context that the Ephesians are in. Because this whole father thing ugh, is a point of tension. And honestly, I think if you were to go around and ask most Ephesians, they would maybe want a God who was not father. One that they could work for. One that they could live good deeds and do good things and get on that God's good side. Because sometimes it's hard to rationalize a God who doesn't necessarily pour out more blessings on me because I am a good person and then pours out all sorts of blessings on people who are dumb and stupid and evil. But what Paul is after here when he says he is the father of all, he's wading into this tension between the Jews' heritage and what's happened to the Gentiles. Let me explain. All the Jews, when it came to father, you, you hear this when you hear the Pharisees 
berate Jesus and question Jesus. They say, well, our father was Abraham. We're Father Abraham's kids. And they, I mean, that's like their gold star. We, we, oh, show me my badge, Father Abraham. Yep, Abraham. You know, you know who my dad is. Father Abraham, it was their thing. They pushed that on everyone. We're Abraham's kids. And that was a big deal. That's our heritage. And listen, it really was important. But they didn't use it as just this importance of how much God loves us. It was, look how much God loves us. We're Abraham's descendants. And so he hates you Jews. He hates you, sorry, hates you Gentiles. You guys are evil. You're, you're wicked. You're not Abraham's kids. You're bastards. That's what I'm, I'm again, don't email me. That's what they would say. They would pray things like, God, thank you that I'm not a woman. Thank you that I'm not a slave. Thank you that I'm not a Gentile. But most of all, I'm not a Gentile. The end, that's their prayers. And so what you have is a heritage-based hatred towards the Gentiles from the Jews. Now, put yourself in the Gentile side of things. You have been made to feel less than religiously your entire existence. So much so that you've just given up on this Yahweh God or this father Abraham, whoever was the father behind him or his selection. Who cares? I don't want any part of that. Not because of necessarily who that God is or what he stands for, but because of his people. And there's this huge divide between our heritage and what has happened to us. Hopefully you're filling out what I'm getting down into and how this applies to our modern day lives. He says, you have the same father. So you people who wear your heritage like a badge of honor, stop. You people who use what happened to you as an excuse for everything, stop. We have got to get over those things and realize that the main thing is that you have a father and he is the father of all. Let go of heritage, let go of what happened, find forgiveness and reconciliation and do everything in your power to move on. Now, what's wild here is um, between the heritage and what happens out of things is he says, and we're getting into this next week. He says, you're one body, guys. And how stupid would it be for the left arm to go, ah, you know what I hate? The right arm. It's a jerk. <laughs> that right arm, uh, he just wants to keep everything the same. He doesn't ever want to spend any money. That right arm is just a big fat jerk. And then for, for, for the right arm to go, I can't stand the left arm. He's just trying to give money away. He doesn't do any background checks on people. Um, he's, <laughs> he's, he's, got, he's so, you know, just free thinking, whatever. And, and, and what, what the body of Christ has to realize is that when I talk bad about the left arm or the right arm, no matter which one I am, I'm talking about the same body that I'm a part of. And when I say that I don't like that, I'm not dissing on the arm necessarily. What I'm ultimately dissing on is the body, ultimately the head who is Jesus, and it's his body that we're a part of. See, what the arms need to do is go, hey, you know what? Whether we're the right arm, whether we're the left arm, what we gotta realize is that we can reach a whole lot more people if we work together. And that's the church. And and we've gotta realize that too, that we can reach a whole lot more people if we work together. And some of that may even mean like we will start working with other churches because I feel like whatever our, I don't know what arm our is, I don't know. I don't know, it's strong, it's got some tattoos on it. Um, It it means us working together, rolling up our sleeves, willing to get our hands dirty, 
asking Jesus, hey, uh, where would you be right now if you were here? What would you be doing? So he says, he's the father of all. Passage that makes this very clear to us is Ephesians 1, 4, 5. He says, even those who were chosen to him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Both Jew, both Gentile, both black, both white, rich, poor, old, young, everything in between, every race, nationality, tribe, tongue, you're adopted. If you're in Christ, his whole purpose, his whole predestined plan was that you'd be adopted, brought in, and you'd be a son and a daughter, not a worker, not a slave, not a manager. You'd be a son and a daughter. He goes on from there and says, he's the father of all, and he is over all. This is the good news. What he's getting at there is that, that our father, he's not just our father, but he is also the name above all names. He is also full of power, rule, reign, and authority. In Ephesians 1, 20, 21 through says this, it says the father, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but there is the age to come. And so the Ephesians are going, what? Like, okay, so we don't just have a father. He is not just a father of all, but he is a father over all. So I don't have to get on a God's good side by keeping it silver figurine in my pocket anymore. I don't have to um, make excuses for my stupid behavior because of constellations anymore. Now, again, like I can't believe that people were doing that back then. And I definitely can't believe that people, and even people who say they're Christians continue to do that. Now, please stop. It's stupid. Um, I love you. He says, no, 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 no. We, we don't have to get the gods and the stars on our side. God is our, he, he is the father of all. And if he is a father who would adopt you in your mess and your sin, he loves you enough to provide and to care and to, and to look after you. He is a name above every name. He is sovereign. He goes on from there to say that he is the father through all. What do you think that means? That he's the father through all. Well, who is Paul talking about right here? He's talking about the church. So when he says he is the father through all, that means that he is the father who's working through, get this, all of you. Not just the ones who are ordained, not just the ones with perfect Sunday school attendance, not just the ones who tithe an actual percentage, not just those folks. He says, he is a father through all. That means that he is a God and father who longs and is intentionally working through all of the church. Now this is, this is my belief. This is not how most world religions operate and work guys. Most world religions say, God's gonna do things, or, or you're gonna do things through God. Like if, any, if anything good happens, it was because God was working through you. He used you as an instrument. Jihadis who are working on behalf of Allah to bring jihad. I'm, I'm, God is allowing me to do this. Christianity is different. Christianity comes on the scene and says, God actually wants to do something through you. Not just you doing things through God. And there's this passage that we've leaned into and we've talked about a little bit. It's Ephesians 3, 9, 10. And this, this is not in the scripture. This is just me putting that in there so you know this, this actually makes sense. It says, through Paul, God will 
bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that, don't miss this, what does through all mean? What, is, what, do you, what does it mean to have a father who is through all? It means so that through the church. You could just put all right there. If you've got your own Bible, write, you know, all, A-L-L. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What he's saying there is that, what does it mean to have a father who is through all? It means that you have a father who has a plan for you, a big plan for you, but more importantly, a plan for y'all to work through all y'all. So y'all people, so you people who maybe just come and you go, well, I'm telling you, God has a plan for y'all to see his manifold wisdom be put on display here at McDonough through people like you. So you're missing out if you just come and you just go. You're missing out if people don't know your name and we want to do everything we can to help you get connected. So that was it means that he's a father through all. All right. Next one he says is he is a father in all. What does it mean to have a father who is in all? And again, this is so counterproductive and it's so much different than any other world religion. We see this in Ephesians 2, 22. It's like Paul is circling back to all the things that he already said so that they can, if they meditate on this long enough, be able to understand it. He says, in him, God, in this God, the father, you are also being built together into, all right? What does it mean to have a father who is in all? It means that you have a father who is building you into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. So what does it mean to, to say that I have a father who is in all? What that means is, if this is wild, you have a father, like your father God is in you. So when he says he is in all, that means he is in all of us. If you're in Christ, that means all of God is in all of you. That should make it a whole lot harder to hate people. It should make it a whole lot harder to go to bed angry. That should make it a whole lot harder to do the things that we're so prone to do as human beings, to know that all of God is in all of them and all of God is in all of me. So why can't we work this out? It's hard. He's built us into a dwelling place, which you can hear all that and maybe you still are like, Okay, so what? Like, honestly, like that's, that's, that's some stuff, Trent, you know, but I'm a plumber and, uh, or I'm an electrician or, or I'm a stay-at-home mom. And uh, it's really good to know all those things about God being all through all in all, above all and overalls and whatever. Uh, but what does it have to do with my life, my real life, every day in, every day out? What does it have to do with what's really happening right now? It's a good question. And I think there are some answers here. I want to walk you through them in the rest of the time I have left. First of all, he says he is in all. So what does that mean? If he's the father of all, of all, we all long to belong. And so if we have a father who, who says he is the father of all, that means, friend, you do belong now. You actually have a father. You have somebody who loves you and cares about you. You have somebody who's in your corner. You have the father of all who is right there with you, who is taking care of you. And when you say you long to belong, he says, I got you. And you know what the odd factor in this is? The world says work to belong. Our father says, I've done the work. You do belong. The world comes in and says, hey, if you wanna belong, whether it's to this job, this group of people, this neighborhood, this HOA, most of them are from the pits of hell. Um, <laughs> 
If you want to belong, you've got to do all these things and, and measure up. And, and, here, and if you really want to belong, if you really want to fit in, heaven forbid anybody ever come to know the real you. Because if they really know the real you, you know what you won't be anymore? One who belongs. Because people who do that, think that, act like that, still struggle with that. They don't belong here. But God comes in and goes, you know what? Actually, and this is where our, odd is, our God is an odd God. He comes in and says, you know what? You're going to have a really hard time ever really belonging to this family that is Christianity. If you're continuing to posture, if you're continuing to hide, if you're continuing to withhold, if you're continuing to be a poser, you're going to have a hard time with this thing that is Christianity. The people who will get the most out of this are the people most willing to surrender, confess, and let it out. And it's good, it's good too. Like, honestly, I mean, it's, it's freedom. Well, you know, everybody knows, you know, it's out there. See, I, one of the things I've learned in my life is that God has a, I'm not saying he won't, because I'm not saying say God won't do anything. But I don't know if God is, super, is, is fired up to bless the person you're pretending to be. Here's why. If he blesses the person you're pretending to be, what does that throw you further into? It perpetuates a fake version of you. A fake version to your wife, fake version to your kids, fake version to your church. And God is not about you being fake. He's about being who he really created you to be. So when you have a father who is, a father who is saying like, hey, listen, like you belong. There's freedom in that. To know that there's nothing that can snatch me out of this father's hand because I, I belong here. I've been adopted. And he's the one who has the adoption papers. They're written in Christ's blood. And nothing can erase that. So, so What? So you belong. Next, he says, he's a God overall. Well, we all long for security. And I went back and forth here. I didn't know whether to put, we long for security or we long for control. <laughs> some women in the room already <laughs> made some noises. Um, <laughs> but as I thought about this, I got to thinking like, the times in my life when I've been most controlling were also the times where I was most insecure. And because I was insecure, I was trying to control everything that was going on. And I was put, I, I was, you know, I want to be able to control this. So let me, you know, I mean, I don't know if financially we're there. So let me control everything we're spending. I don't know if I really have your full undivided attention or trust or approval or respect. So let me try to do everything I can to control it. And what God is saying here is if you have a father who is overall you have a father who's a provider and protector. You have a father who's over all the global economies. You have a father who is over all elections. You have a father who is over all, every cell in your body. You have a father who's over that. He's over it. And you have a father who who did not let his son suffer one more drop of pain than he had to at the cross. Do you think, do you, th <laughs> do you really think that when God was like, I'm gonna allow my son to go to the cross and be crucified for you, that he was like, just have your way with him. Or that God knew every drop of spit down to the exact ounce that would be spit in his son's eye. Do, do, you, do you not think that he knew every hair that was gonna be plucked from his beard? He knew how many thorns were on the crown. 
Our God knew the exact lengths that the pain his son had to suffer for him to go through what he had to go through so you could get into what you, he wants you to get into through faith in him. And so if that means you go through pain, trust this about the character of our father who is overall, he has your pain measured. He has every cell of your body measured. He has the exact distance that that prodigal will run from you measured. He knows it. And he will not let them go. He will not let it turn. He will not let it burn any more than it has to. And even if it does end bad, the cross ended bad. Fridays happen, but so do Sundays. And so we have a father who is overall. So we can trust him. We can trust that I don't have to strive for control. I can live in security that I have. I can live with security that my father is over this and I can release my hands off of it so that I don't have to control it anymore. He controls it. What does it mean to have a father who's through all? Well, it's one thing to have a God, like have a father who we now belong to and he provides for us and he protects us. But it's a whole nother thing to go like, well, I don't want to just stop there. I don't just want to have this peaceful, easy life where this guy just, you know, hey, you can't make an ends meet on your own. I'm just going to shell this out to you. We long to have a purpose. Like if I got a God who says you belong to the family and there are unlimited resources in this family. So go sit in your room. No, I, I need a purpose. I want some significance in this life. And what's crazy and odd about this is the world says you've got to go do things and make things happen in order to achieve significance. And our God says, again, I have already done it. And because of what I've done, if you ever doubt your self-worth, if you ever doubt how significant you are, look to the cross. That's how much I was willing to pay for you. You are my son significant. And, And he looks at me and you and he goes, you know what now? It's not just about you and the fact that my son paid the price for you. He says, now, you have this crazy divine purpose as a member of the church to allow me to work in and through you in a way that shows the onlooking world that my son is real and I will overcome things through the church. This is where we become secure. See, we all long for purpose and to be told that through our lives, through your life, through my life, together collectively, we as a church, to know that this could happen in in our day and age. We could show every satanic and demonic force that's behind racism, classism, ageism, sexism, that our father has actually made us one. That's your purpose, to show every one of the demonic forces. When he said it would be through the unification of the church that God's manifold wisdom will be made known to dark forces, that's what he's saying. So when it means that our father works through you, you have a very significant purpose. God wants to show every demon in hell that unification can work and it is working and it will work through us. So he says, through my church to Satan, he says, you may be able to tempt them, test them, attack them and persecute them, but you cannot and you will not divide them. And the reason he can't is because guys, this love that unites us, this love that unites us is resurrection love. It loved that unites us, it overcame a grave. So it stands confident, even at Satan's gravest attempts to divide us, it stands confident that even his greatest attempts to divide me from you will end up just like the empty grave on Easter morning, devoid of his power, robbed. And the last thing he says is, 
in all. He's a father who is in all. See, every one of us, we long for treasure. Start out as little kids, man, drawing little maps, trying to find X's in the yard. People go on journeys to the bottom of the ocean to find buried treasure. What's your treasure? It's a relationship, it's a kid. Is it amount of money? Is it just being able to know like I'm happy? I'm good. What is, it, what is that thing that if it was gone tomorrow, you would be most tempted to turn your back on God and walk away from your faith? And if he took it away, you would be very tempted to walk away. What is your treasure? See, what's, what's odd about our God, when he says he is the father in all, what that means is he's in us. Now, this is very counter to the whole way the world operates. And this is why our God is odd. See, the world operates in this fact that, and you'll hear it in every commercial you hear today, every ad you see on YouTube, you're missing something. Your life isn't good enough right now. Your hair is less hair. You're not big enough. You're not strong enough. You're not pretty enough. Your eyes kind of have bags under them. This thing right here in the middle of your head, like shoot some chemicals in there and make that thing go away. Get some, get some chemical treasure into your face and you'll feel better about yourself. Get the amount of money, get enough money so that you feel comfortable because who knows what's gonna happen next. Get all this stuff that's out there and then finally you'll have this internal happiness and peace. And our God goes, that's stupid. I am in you. And I think the, the message you give to many Christians today is going, that stuff doesn't fit in here anymore. Please stop trying to put your 401k into this treasure box that is your heart. I, I'm in here and I'm good enough. P- quit trying to put your kid in here. I, I, like They should have a piece of your heart, but they're not the treasure of your heart. I am. Quit trying to put your marriage or this relationship that you want or all these other things into your heart without first and foremost understanding that I am the king of your heart. I am the treasure of your heart. And this is what's so counter about our God. He says, I work from the inside out. You don't go out and attain treasure. You invite me in. I become the king of your heart, the rule of your heart. I rule and reign. And I then give you the best life you could ever ask for. That's what he's after. And this, and, and, and this is why communion is so powerful. This is why we take communion every single week here as a church. There's something special that happens when we actually put something into our body. It's a subtle, significant reminder that the treasure in this life is Christ in me. The treasure in this life is in Christ because he made a way for me to be able to experience the father of all, who's through all, who's above all, and who's in all. Today, we're gonna sing this song celebrating that reality and that truth of what Christ has done for us, leaning into this reality that our lives are now supposed to be vessels where we in in unification together say that he is the God who is of all of us, who is over all of us, who is through all of us and in all of us. And our purpose is to magnify him. The song we're gonna sing, that's the Christ be magnified. You remember in 
science class, probably anatomy or something when you were in high school. If your school had enough money, you had those kind of high-powered microscopes in your science lab. And you could take, you know, I, I remember biting a fingernail off and putting it under the microscope. It's kind of gross. But you take, you know, this fingernail looks pretty normal when you're just looking at it with the naked eye. You put it under a microscope and it's magnified to a place where it looks like this satanic demon. Like when you look at a fingernail through there, it's black and gray and it's disgusting, right? That's because you're taking something small and you're making it look bigger than it really is. That's not what we mean as Christians when we say Christ be magnified. It's not microscope magnification, it's telescope magnification. So when I go out and look at the night sky, I can see with the naked eye right now, you can see multiple planets. Mars is one of the ones that right now, like I think you can see Mars with the naked eye. You know anything about Mars? Mars has a little bit of a, a orange hue to it. Magnification is me looking up there and going, oh, that's a really big bright star. So I can get a telescope Gospel magnification is telescope magnification that goes, I'm not changing what that really looks like. I'm using something, I'm magnifying something so that I can see it better. I can see it as it actually is. I'm not trying to make it into a monstrous thing under a microscope. I'm telescoping so that I can get a better view of what it actually is. So that I can under the telescope go, oh no, that's not a star. That's got some orange to it. That's Mars. In the Christian world, we call that Revelation. I now see this God for what he really is. And our job as a body of Christ is to magnify God so that as we more and more, as we're in his word and as we're in prayer and as we're in meditation, we begin to see him for who he really is. And then we magnify him to a world looking in, not to make God bigger than he is, but to make God as he actually is to a world looking on this desperate need to see who he really is. And what's the hard part is, is most of the people in the world, they've already seen who Christians say he is. And so they've given up on really learning who he really is. And what our job is, is as people who are in Christ, who lay all the other trappings of what a, whatever quote unquote, American cultural Christianity is supposed to be. We lay all of those aside and just go, hey, I just wanna show you pure Jesus, pure God, pure Holy Spirit, as unadulterated as possible without all the other sauce. I just want you to see God. And that's how we magnify him through our lives where we live, work and play. As you receive communion today, know that he's a God in all. He's a great treasure and then stand and sing and let's magnify him together in this room in such a way that it overflows into whatever room, spaces and places you go for the rest of the week. Let's pray. Jesus, move in and through your church today. We beg you to do the things that only you can do, not for our sake, not for our glory, but for yours. It's in your name we pray.